This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the June episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. This episode is part one of a two-part look at disruptive and aggressive behaviors associated with TSC-associated neuropsychiatric disorders, otherwise known as TAND, during COVID-19. As we approach four months of sheltering in place during the ongoing pandemic, everyone's lives have been drastically changed as schedules and routines get upended and we avoid activities we used to engage in to protect ourselves and the ones we love. This disruption has been even more acute for TSC families, especially those dealing with TAND-related behaviors. Changes to routines, being stuck at home, and not having the same access to behavior specialists has created a perfect storm where kids with behaviors can experience regression and the frequency and severity of their behaviors can increase. To begin to tackle this complex issue, I spoke with Dr. Nathan Call, Clinical Director at Marcus Autism Center and Associate Professor at the Emory University School of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. Before getting to the interview, I wanna emphasize that everyone's experience with TAND is different. And throughout the discussion, Dr. Call highlights a spectrum of scenarios that may or may not apply to you and your family. What is most important is if you are in crisis and need support, the TS Alliance is here to help you. You do not need to suffer alone. Our 800 number is 800-225-6872, and we will work to connect you with resources and with other families who know what you are going through and can offer support. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Call. I'm now joined by Dr. Nate Call, Clinical Director of the Marcus Autism Center and Associate Professor of the Emory University School of Medicine Department of Pediatrics. Dr. Call, thank you so much for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. So you talked to my coworker, Shelly, about behaviors a couple of months ago, and obviously many families are still at home and they're still dealing with the day-to-day reality of this unprecedented time and the pandemic. Since that time, how has the pandemic affected the rate of behaviors that you've noticed? Have you seen families have more issues with behaviors since the start? You know, it's a great question. And it's one that I don't know anyone can really answer definitively. And the reason I say that is, you know, the condition, I would say the conditions are ripe for challenging behaviors to be worse. And yet a lot of the systems and infrastructure and pathways through which we connect with families who are dealing with these challenges are disrupted right now. So for example, we work a lot with the emergency department here at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And we have consultative services and we have ways in which families who show up there with a kid in crisis can get help. But so many families are so reluctant to go to the emergency room these days that it's hard to tell if we're actually seeing lower numbers in the ED of these kinds of families. I don't for a second think that things just suddenly got better and that all of the families who used to come to the emergency room looking for that kind of help suddenly find themselves doing better than ever and don't need that kind of help. But I think that they're very concerned about coming in. And the same thing can be said for a lot of the clinical services that we offer due to things like families having family members who are medically fragile, 
or have some susceptibilities. They're very concerned about coming in and being seen. So I think the best we can say is that the conditions are ripe for things to really be a lot worse, right? A lot of the families who have kids who engage in these kinds of behaviors are finding themselves isolated from their support networks, from their service providers. A lot of the things that families can deploy to help their kids and their loved ones who have challenging behaviors are not accessible. So families have oftentimes found really great coping strategies and ways to manage problem behavior through access to preferred activities or maintaining a really strict routine. And all of that is out the window. So I think all of that combines to really make it hard to know exactly what is going on out in the world other than the conversations we have with families who have reached a crisis point. We feel like we want to do our best for those families, but it's hard to say exactly what the overall prevalence is. Yeah, I I think you touched on a key point that typical coping mechanisms aren't available. Everyone's routine has been upended. Parents are home more than ever and often dealing with these behaviors by themselves. We reached out to our community and just asked if you could talk to a behavior specialist what questions would you ask? And we got such a wide variety of answers. You know, people are dealing with sleeplessness, emotional outbursts, self-regulation, violence. What would be the starting point for these parents to help at least introduce some set of routine and normalcy to help stop this regression? It's really tough in part because what we know about how to manage these kinds of behaviors is that it requires a high degree of individualization that every kid, every family and their circumstances are pretty unique. And that's where oftentimes having somebody with a background like in in behavior analysis, who's got training, specific training to address these behaviors, to assess the situation and identify what's most likely to work or be a good starting point for this kid and this family that takes all of that into account. That's oftentimes the best place to start. But again, a lot of those, those providers aren't able to be accessed. You know, some of that can be accomplished through telehealth, but not everybody is able to access that. Right. And even that it has its, its own set of challenges. So I think, you know, when I talk to families in this situation, the number one thing that I can recommend would be to prioritize as appropriately as one can, keeping in mind the absurdity of the situation that we all find ourselves in. And there are absolutely scenarios where families and kids are in a situation where they can maintain all of the gains that were made prior to having to quarantine themselves or really restrict themselves from being out in the community or in their schools. And that the family is able to kind of pick up the ball and run with it and and not just maintain, but also in some cases build on successes that have been made prior to all of this. And then there are other families where, you know, I really counsel them like, look, just focus on getting through the day. And that might mean you're choosing to not fight battles that you used to fight all the time. And, you know, I don't mean literally fight, although sometimes that may be the case. I mean, you're choosing to kind of let certain things go. And and we're, we're going to, I use the example once before of screen time, right? Like, you know, I, I have a, I have a nine-year-old who has an iPad who if left on his own will just kind of continuously be on his screen. And a few months ago, it seems like forever, but just months ago, that was something that we really strictly regulated and tried to make sure that there were other activities in his day. And you know what? We've relaxed that quite a bit because the scenario that we find ourselves in of just trying to get through the day, right? Me having to work, we've got siblings. We don't really have the ability to deal with if there were to be challenging behavior, how are we going to cope with that? You know, we don't have the supports that we might otherwise have. All of those things combined to really cause us to reprioritize some things. And while it's not what anyone would want in normal times, these just aren't normal times. And giving people permission to say, look, we're not living in normal times. 
we've got to reprioritize a little bit and focus on getting through the day, even if that means not doing things the way we would normally do them. And even if it means that for all, from a long-term perspective, we might be taking a step back. And so it really depends on the family and their circumstances, I guess, but that's the number one piece of advice I think I can give, which is really try to prioritize appropriately, recognize the strangeness of the situation we're in, recognize how much supports you really have, what really is reasonable for a family to try to achieve at any given time, given the state that they are in their that takes into account their child, their supports, where their state is at in terms of open and close, all of those things. You mentioned the expansion of telehealth use for some families and and for some of them, that's been a real lifeboat because they've been able to continue their behavioral interventions and they've continued to get coaching from a professional. But not all families have access to telehealth, whether it's a geography issue or their kid just won't engage in a Zoom meeting. What resources are available for those families? And what are you recommending in terms of inpatient versus outpatient services, especially considering that there is this fear of going to the emergency room and that being a last resort? Yeah, I think there's a couple of questions in your your question that I'm going to try to unpack. And so hopefully I'll hit on all of the right points. So one part of it, you asked like, what about if a child won't participate in something like a Zoom meeting? And and I want to be really clear where most of the literature lies on the use of telehealth for behavioral interventions. These are not necessarily interventions that are directed to the child. For the most part, these are interventions that are directed to the caregiver, to the parent. And it's more of a coaching model. So it's a professional working with the parent who then is working with the kid. So it's giving them strategies to try, it's observing and then giving feedback and coaching that caregiver on how to work with their kid to get the kinds of outcomes that they're looking for. And so that's where most of the research on using telehealth for behavioral interventions that is really that that model is the model that's most supported right now. I don't I'm not really aware of any studies using kind of these types of behavioral strategies for kids like the kids in of the parents in your audience where there's direct service to the kid. I'm sure there are for things like maybe anxiety or depression for the most part for challenging behavior. That's just not how it's, how it's applied typically. So I do think that, you know, if, if people have that misconception that I can't really participate in telehealth because my kid isn't going to do that kind of work, then I think that, that hopefully that dispels that myth just a little bit. The other thing that you talked about is you know, looking at inpatient and outpatient. I think that there are, are advantages and disadvantages and really when it comes to something like you know, an out-of-home placement, an inpatient unit somewhere or some other out-of-home placement, you know, the biggest advantage there is, it, first of all, I hope nobody, you know, the hope is that nobody ever reaches a point where they're in such crisis that they have to really even contemplate something like this. And if that is the case, my heart goes out to those families. I absolutely know that that's a reality that a lot of people face, more people than then should have to face it. And that's why I've dedicated so much of what I spend my time doing to try to make that even just a little bit less common. At the same time, it's a reality and it is something that some families have to contemplate. So I'll say that when you're thinking of pros and cons and thinking of what is the right setting for a particular child, inpatient in particular, what the biggest advantage I would say that those types of settings have is the 24-7 care that they can offer. And so for some individuals, safety requires that in order for that child and that family to be safe. It just is not otherwise safe unless that child is constantly monitored and supported. And that can be because the behavior is so challenging and dangerous, or it can be because of other issues like, again, a, a child who's medically fragile who needs that round-the-clock medical care and their behavior is then complicating that even further, or the medical condition is complicating the behavior situation and go both ways. At the same time, I think that it's really important to look at those types of settings and 
if, if safety is not the issue, then I think it's important to think, well, you know, if a child could theoretically be successful in either one, either could be kept safe either way, then there are some advantages to outpatient settings if they're, if they're operating in the model that I would really advocate for and not all of them do. And so that's, that's something to kind of become educated about and really think through any particular setting. And is that, is it really adhering to what I would consider to be best practices, which the outpatient settings that I think are doing the best work continue to be focused on that caregiver training model, right? Because these settings tend to be short to medium term at best, and that kid's not going to be there forever. And so when those types of programs are doing their best work, they tend to be very focused on stabilizing a situation spending the time to understand what interventions are going to be the most successful for that child and then training the caregivers and generalizing that treatment back into the home. And there are some real advantages to an outpatient setting over an inpatient setting when safety is not an issue, right? And so I think one of the big benefits of those settings is the frequent contact between caregiver and provider. So we have an outpatient setting here and I sometimes say that, you know, I've worked in an inpatient unit in the past. I've had the opportunity to, to work in those settings. And when I worked in an inpatient setting, I, as a provider, my relationship with that family is kind of like my mechanics relationship with me, right? Like I show up with my car and I say, hey, this isn't working the way I want it to. Could you please fix this and let me know when it's fixed and I'll come pick it up. And as a clinician, that kind of relationship is really not the one that I feel is most conducive to producing long-term improvements because so much is driven by that caregiver's ability to implement and sustain the changes that might take place in those settings, even when they're, the change is successful, caregivers going to have to maintain that over the long run. And so by having a daily contact with the family, two things happen. One is there's opportunities to do more training, to do more understanding of the situation that that family is living in and how I, as a clinician, doing work that's going to have to be sustainable in that setting. And the other thing it does is, honestly, it creates a different set of pressure points on the providers, right? Like, again, I when I've worked in outpatient settings, I see that family every day. They drop off their kid and I have to talk to them and I'm accountable to them in a different way than if I don't see them for weeks at a time. Because I have to look that parent in the eye and explain to them how I'm spending my time with their kid and what progress is being made. And, and that just, that more frequent communication, that more frequent contact, I think all is for the good. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't instances where an inpatient unit is needed for safety or to produce the kind of successful outcomes. And so I'm not at all saying that, you know, one should forego that if that's what's best for their kid. But I do think that, you know, outpatient settings can be very, very successful. The last thing that comes up is sometimes people say, well, my kid's behavior is so severe that they can't possibly be in an outpatient setting. And again, a good setting, a setting that's doing things correctly, I would argue would be focusing on first and foremost, making sure that that kid can go home and be successful on a day-to-day basis, not just at the end of the whole experience. And then lastly, especially when I talk to people who are less familiar with these kinds of family kids and the challenges that their families are enduring, sometimes they'll say, well, how would you possibly send this self-injurious, for example, child home at the end of the day? And I have to explain to them that fewer families than one might think are in the kind of crisis that most of us would be in if we just transplanted into their household, that most of the kids that we see, even in our outpatient setting, are pretty severe by most standards, right? They're maybe highly aggressive, highly self-injurious, but that kid didn't get that way overnight. That kid might've been aggressive as a four or five-year-old and the family came up with strategies to cope and adapt and change their household and how things were, you know, just physical layout and come up with strategies to block and keep the kids safe. And then kid got bigger and they had to adapt and the kid got even bigger and they had to adapt. And so now we're dealing with a kid that 
you know, just about any of us, if we just suddenly had to live our lives day in and day out with that family, we would be in a crisis, but that family is not because yeah, it's definitely worse than what it would be. And that's why they're seeking help. But it's, it's also not at a point where it's unsustainable for that family to be seen on an outpatient basis so long as some supports are in place. So it's a complicated mix. And I think one of the things you're hearing from me, I'm sorry, I know if, if folks are listening to this and hoping that there's going to be a, oh, you know, just here's your magic bullet. Here's the solution. Just go do this. Unfortunately, I don't have that. I, if I had that particular you know ability to just produce magic changes like that, maybe I'd have a church instead of a clinic. It, it's, it's just the reality that these are complex problems that don't happen overnight. And the solutions generally aren't going to be one size fits all in order they actually take effect overnight. But with a systematic approach that is really taken into account kind of the best practices that are out there and that involve really teaching the right sets of skills, both to the families and the kid, we definitely can see significant changes occur. So you talked a little bit about how these families that you're seeing, these parents have adapted and and created their own strategies. In addition to dealing with the behaviors at home, there are other barriers to seeking help. You have to get it cleared by your insurance. There may be a wait list. You might have to try other medications before you can take a medication and have everything else fail. What advice would you give to parents to be proactive about seeking these services and this help before they're in a crisis mode? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a tough question because really families have to be such advocates in many instances. It doesn't feel right. And I don't have a better way to say it than it seems like we're dealing with families who are already struggling in a lot of instances and they already have a lot of challenges and more so than most, they are oftentimes isolated in ways that many of us are not. The impact of having a kid with these kinds of behaviors on every facet of life. I mean, there's research that shows marital stress is higher. Siblings are, are more challenged. Household income is affected. Like every aspect of life, And then it just feels wrong to turn around and say, okay, for your child to get any kind of help at all, you have to get your law degree and get your master's in managed health administration, healthcare administration, because that's how it feels that in order to get the the resources that your kid needs, you have to be so fluent in bureaucratic speak and be willing to go to the wall that it just seems unreasonable to me. I mean, you're right. Like, you know, the, the, the solution is, advocate early, understand the details. But but that also to me feels a little bit, it feels unreasonable to put that on a family sometimes. And so this is one of those things where I don't, I, don't, I mean, I wish the system were different. This is the system that we have. It's pretty drastically flawed in my opinion. And I very much wish it was different, but you know, everything from going to the IEP meeting to talking to your insurance company to trying to, you know, advocate with your child's primary care doc to get specialty care. All of these things are just barriers and they're the barriers can feel insurmountable. And that really is a big issue that, that I think has to continue to be an area of focus for these families to be able to focus on what they should be doing, which is working with their kid, right? Being able to implement these kinds of strategies that we're talking about. Maybe not the answer you're looking for, and I'm sorry about that, but it certainly is a point of some angst for me. And I'm sure it is. I mean, and I know it is for the families because I hear it from them. With parents having to wear all these hats, advocate, teacher, 
parent, in-house behavior specialist, how can they create space for themselves to cope while still maintaining, you know, a safe environment for their kid who might be having violent behaviors? And that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, which I think is prioritization. And this might sound trite, right? Because like I literally had a family this week that I was talking, two weeks ago that we were talking, family brought their child into the emergency room and just had kind of reached the end, right? Like I cannot continue to take care of this kid. I need help brought their kid to the emergency department. We approached them and said, look, we can see you in our, we have what we call crisis admissions. And so families who are in the ED, we may say, if you'll leave the ED, we'll immediately enroll you in a two-week curriculum where we'll develop some strategies for you and your family. We'll do a home visit. We'll help set you up with some protective equipment. We'll get you a car harness if that's what you need. So really, and it's interesting because what we're showing is that that approach actually saves money, right? That is not, right now, no insurance company pays for that. But it saves money because if that kid ends up in the ED, they often are in the ED for a long time while they're looking for an out-of-home placement. And that's a really expensive form of care. And so we're finding that we're able to offset those costs. Back to your question. You asked, like, how do these families prioritize things? And I, we talked to that mom and we said, like, what, what would be the number one thing that would make a difference for you? She said, you know what? My 16-year-old son is so aggressive. He needs my attention constantly. If I just turn away he gets aggressive. She said, I would love to be able to use the bathroom alone. In order for her to use the bathroom, she has to have her 16-year-old son go into the bathroom with her and sit on a stool while she uses the toilet. That's just one example of just to say to that mom, oh, you just need to prioritize some you time feels pretty dismissive of what she's dealing with. That's an extreme example. And there are certainly families where I would say, you know, saying to that to uh, other families, making sure that if you have the ability to maybe let some other things go so that you can just take a breath from time to time. It's such a cliche of like, you know, when you're on the airplane, put your own mask on before you, so you can help someone else. You know that it's cliche, but sometimes cliches exist because they capture an idea pretty well. And I think in this instance, that does capture pretty well the idea of if you're not able to take care of yourself, then you really aren't able to provide help to anyone else, including your child. And it's, it's not surprising that you see things like kids with challenging behaviors, kids with disabilities, are at much higher risk for abuse, right? And it's, and it's because the amount of stress on these families is, is extreme. I understand that there are those families who are like, look, I just need to be able to use the bathroom and telling me that I just need to, you know, go have a spa day is not really, is, too, is extremely dismissive and doesn't appreciate the situation they're in. A lot of families, if they can even give themselves a little bit of time, they can get some help so that they can spend 15 minutes just breathing in and out. And if that means that you let some, you choose not to fight some other battles so that you can have that, that makes a lot of sense. But I also recognize, and I want to be clear that I know that there are families for whom that's just an impossibility. And those are the families that frankly, you know, I'm trying my best to make sure that we're doing what we can to help them through our program here at Mark's Autism Center. Well, we appreciate everything that you've been doing and, and other experts have been doing to kind of adapt to times we're in right now. And I guess, given what you've learned over the last few months, how can parents prepare for a second wave or the uncertainty of whether or not they can go back to school in the fall? You know, I'm dealing with this in my own family. We literally got our school's plans for what they're going to be doing in the fall yesterday. And, and my wife and I were having conversations about what that's going to mean for us and our family. And again, every family is in a different circumstance. Every state and, and even in our state, every school is different. They're leaving certain decisions up to the individual principal. So the number one thing would be, I think, that as of this moment would be to get as good an understanding as you can of not just 
what policies are going to be, but how they're going to be implemented. My experience tends to be that just because the state says we're doing X doesn't mean that that principle of your school is going to do is not going to be doing Y or some version of X that you're not really clear on. And so getting that clarity early would be the number one thing, because it is going to be different for every family. Every family is going to have to make really hard decisions about what level of risk they are able to accept for them and their, their child, what the trade-offs are in terms of accepting risk versus getting the kind of help that their child needs to work on other facets of their development, what that means for jobs and childcare. I mean, it, the, the factors are so incredible that it, it really is pretty unique to each family. They're going to have to make their own decisions. And it depends on what state you're in. I mean, it really is all over the place. So it's hard to predict. And, and to your point, second wave, I'm here, we aren't through the first wave. And so we're all living through times that I wake up every day and think, man, really still like this? It's the nightmare hasn't ended. It's certainly tough. And every family is in a different situation. And, and we got to give people the and give ourselves the grace to make the best decision for you and then be adaptable and empathetic because nobody woke up January 1, 2020 and said, you know what I think is going to happen this year? <laughs> And then predicted this. Well, I, I think, you know, that's a good note to end on. And just a reminder that we're all sort of working through this together and trying to figure it out. And I appreciate everything you and your practice are doing to adapt to the crises that families are having. And I also just appreciate you taking time to talk to me this morning. Well, thank you. And thank you for the TSC Alliance and all the work that you guys are doing. I shared with some of the other folks from your organization, just how grateful I am that you are taking care of the, the kids and the families that we serve. I sometimes say nobody gets into this field for anything other than the best of intentions and the people that I work with, I'm very fortunate that this is truly a mission, right? I mean, people do this because they believe that they're making the world a better place. And so when we find groups like yours that are doing everything they can to, to help the same kids and families that we work with, to your point, we're in this together. And we're so grateful to have organizations that are doing everything they can in these crazy times to help families. So thank you. My thanks again to Dr. Call for sharing his expertise and advice for families dealing with behaviors. As he said, there is no magic bullet or one size fits all solution for families. And some of the barriers and challenges to accessing effective interventions and medications are baked into a flawed healthcare and mental health system. And the pandemic has only exacerbated these flaws. That being said, it is important to prioritize and to allow some room for grace during these unprecedented times. This is a really important, evolving and ongoing discussion. I want to thank everyone who submitted questions and I want to keep hearing from you. Tell me what your biggest struggles are or what you are most worried about if there is a second wave later this year. You can send me an email at tscnow at tsalliance.org or share your thoughts in the comments on social media. In part two of this discussion, I'll be talking to Dr. Tanjala Gibson, TAND Clinic Director at Labonor Children's Hospital. So be on the lookout for that soon. I'll also share some of our TAND resources, including links to our recent TAND webinars in the show description. That will do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.